I'm Jacob Achenik, and I beat the often path by challenging the current food system, encouraging and enabling anyone and everyone, which means you, to reconnect with the joy and satisfaction that comes from growing your own food. Welcome back to the Beat the Oven Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual and outside-the-box success stories to give us a greater perspective on our lives and careers and to hopefully add meaning to both of those things. Joining me today is Jacob Pachenik, the co-founder of Lettuce Grow. That's lettuce as in salad, a company that he created together with Zoe Deschanel. The idea is profound. They've created a device that lets people grow a significant quantity of produce like lettuce, etc., either inside their home or outside with a self-contained hydroponic system that's basically foolproof. For many people, it represents one of the easiest ways to dramatically improve the quality of their food while greatly reducing the carbon footprint required to get that produce and food to their home. As we love on this show, it's really a win-win, and I think you'll see why as we learn more. But just as interesting is Jacob's own highly unusual career path, which saw him go from trading to MIT to producing dozens of well-known Hollywood films to ultimately founding this company. It is a deeply inspiring story that I know you'll really enjoy. So here's Jacob Pachenik of Let Us Grow. Well, welcome to the show, Jacob. Excellent intro. You nailed it on the first try, so good job. <laughs> it's Thank often you. confusing. You got it. Um, so growing food, something that we're very passionate about. You've got the device behind you, super cool looking device, uh, which I should note for those who are listening. Now, this this is great. I did some research into this, and I saw an article from Inc.com about it. And I'm going to quote them just because it's so funny. They say it looks like a cross between a fancy bong designed by Johnny Ive and one of those new school security robots that patrols the mall. Uh, <laughs> I don't know who's I writing that. I, I haven't seen that one. You got to. Have you heard that, that one? Yeah, no, yeah, but I, I love it. I, do, I yeah. think I, I googled it in the in the discovery process, and I thought, okay, that's that's pretty creative and pretty descriptive. Um, uh, somebody at Inc.com was having fun, but you touch upon growing your own food and you've created this very interesting device that makes it easier, which is super compelling to people like me because I have a garden space for the first time ever. I lived in apartments for years and years and now I find myself with a garden space and growing food is tough. I'll admit it's a challenge, especially when you got pests, you got rodents, you got all kinds of things that come in and eat the thing. Like I had a tomato plant and it was looking great. Woke up the next morning, all the tomatoes were gone. Some critter had mm. come in and eaten them all. Raccoons. So, yeah, probably raccoons are roaming the grounds. So it's been very challenging for me to actually grow food. So let's talk first about what this project and product is, and then we'll go back into how you stumbled upon it or how you came up with the idea. Sure. Yeah, so what you see behind me and what Inc. described as this futuristic <laughs> device, we call it a farm stand, um, and that's a hydroponic growing system. It holds... 20 gallons of water, and it could grow from 12 to 36 different plants at a time. Um, and it does all the irrigation and everything for you. You just, and it comes with an app. You really only need about five minutes a week of attention to it. Um, but the real um, secret sauce is, are the seedlings. And I have one right here. It's a little baby plant. And oh, we yeah. have a network of farms across the country. And we do the thing that's the hardest thing to do when you're growing your own food. And that's really like knowing what to grow, 
when to grow it, how to germinate the seeds. And we get the plants to be two to three weeks old in perfect condition. And then we send them to you to put them in this, that futuristic looking device to finish growing them. So uh, you're pretty much guaranteed a harvest and in half the time that it would normally take, you know, to grow it. Well, that's good. I mean, I know that you've been featured by a lot of publications, Oprah or Oprah Magazine, so a lot of big name publications that people would know have featured the product, given rave reviews. So I'm going to give a very, very Oprah style interview question here and say that I, I can't keep anything alive. So how will I keep something alive with this? Because <laughs> the reviews seem to indicate that it's pretty foolproof. It's very, very foolproof. And you're not alone. I mean, every single person, because, so I didn't design this for gardeners, you know, or for hobbyists or people who are already familiar with Home Depot or Lowe's and, you know, growing their own stuff. This is designed for people who eat food and people who kill plastic plants. So the whole idea isn't really, wasn't for me, wasn't showing people how to grow. It was really delivering nutrition more efficiently than the current food system. So for us to be successful, our customers, our growers need to be successful. And so everything that we do is geared towards ensuring that you are going to have a harvest, you know, in three weeks and that it's going to be on your dinner table. So uh, that's, you know, from from the plants to the unit to our customer care, um, it's foolproof. We let people grow with us for a whole season and they can return the product if they'd like to after that. And since we started, we have fewer than 1% returns. So it's a sign of just how easy it is uh, for everyone. We've got growers in all 50 states. We have 40% uh, of the people grow indoors, 60% outdoors. And across our whole growing network, uh, we have the ability to grow over one and a half million plants per month. So it's Dang. really, it's, it's spread out. It's across, you know, backyards, patios, kitchens, living rooms. And yeah, it's, it's, it's for everyone. Well, that sounds fantastic, obviously. Very cool. And I, I do like the design of it. Uh, what then is the problem? You mentioned efficiency. You mentioned, obviously, people killing plants. But what is the problem as you see it? And how does this solve that problem? Yeah. Well, you know, the last 50 years, there's been a lot of technology advancements in farming. You know, it starts with, like, farming equipment and machinery. And then it went to chemical uh chemicals used like fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, and a lot of them with, you know, a lot of negative ramifications to the environment. Um, then genetic engineering. And so all of these different things has increased the productivity of farming to a dramatic, you know, a level. But at the same time, the farms have been pushed further and further away from population centers. And so the average piece of produce now travels 1,500 to 2,000 miles to get to the grocery store and to your plate. And it's seven to 10 days old by the time you buy it. And half of the nutritional content is gone. And half is wasted along the way. It's kind of ridiculous. 
you know, we're putting our lettuce on a uh, like supply chain that was designed for Doritos, you know, for shelf stabilized things that store well and travel well, but fresh food should be fresh. So when you look at it, you know, you have, uh, there's just so much loss, you know, along the way. So my thought was, you know, even though this is ubiquitous, right? People think, oh, you know, you go to the grocery store to get fresh food. I actually think it's nuts. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we need to relocalize food systems that the food should be grown much closer uh, to where it's consumed. And ideally, a portion of it, and I think up to 20%, could be grown actually in the home. 20%. That's the number you have? That's my target. I think, you yeah. know, in the end of the day, we're still consumers and we're still going to go out to eat and, you know, get food elsewhere. Um, but I think it's it's very achievable uh, to do 20%. And currently, our growers are growing, depending on the size unit they have, they're growing between $500 and $1,500 worth of produce a year. So when you look at the... Uh, you know, look at the overall grocery bill, it, it comes, it's, it's approaching that level. Mm. Well, nowhere is the problem more apparent, I think, to the point that you just made than at a place like Trader Joe's, where they sell their produce in sealed plastic bags. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but my wife and I have experienced this a lot, where you buy this produce, and because it's in a bag and it's sealed, you can't smell it, you can't check it, there's a date on there, but we've had many occasions where we've popped open a bag that we just bought, whether it's asparagus or some kind of leafy green, and it is either already bad or borderline bad. And that has happened numerous times, not just once, and it's, it's, of course, very frustrating, especially if you have guests coming over, you have a meal plan, and you say, oh, oh can't use that. Uh, so that illustrates a number of problems that you mentioned. Obviously, the freshness is one, and just the quality of it from a consumer perspective. But then again, anytime we're injecting single-use plastic into an equation, that's another bad thing, especially something like food, where we're wrapping all of these things, like wrapping a banana in single-use plastic is the often-used example of of waste or things that are already wrapped by some natural form and rewrapping them like an orange or, uh, so you touch upon a number of, of things. And what I think is so compelling about the solution you've come up with is that a lot of people in the world don't have space. They don't have gardens, they don't have yards, but they do have the space certainly indoors for something like what's directly behind your right shoulder. So it is a very fascinating concept. And the idea of getting 20% of your veggies from your own home is also incredible, just saving on the gas and the shipping and all the logistics there. So how did you end up on this idea? How did you decide that this was something that you wanted to go in on? Yeah, well, <clears throat> my career is, you know, taking a bunch of uh, twists and turns. That's what we're here but, for. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because I started, uh, I started, you know, I started trading like stocks and options when I was fourteen, and wow, when okay. I left school, I started uh, like uh, my own trading fund, and then no I way. started, then I went and built software and um, built trading systems, and went into the film business um, and uh, financed and produced like thirty-five films, and on the thirty-fifth film, I met thirty-five. Jeez. Yeah, too many. Um, but I, 
I met the uh, future mother of my kids, and she got pregnant. And I just we started. I started looking at the food that we were eating. I just wanted to have a perfectly healthy baby, and I just started to see chemicals on you know packaging that I didn't recognize. And I went to MIT. I have a degree in chemical engineering, and I used to think uh. it was like cool to. To, to see the chemical names, but, uh, you know, not in the food and especially not in a, if, you know, I didn't know what they were. And so we opted just to eat organic food and, you know, food is close to, you know, as nature intended, just, you know, regular food. And I was just really taken aback by the price point. It's like, God, why is just natural? Like, why is a head of spinach, you know, cost more than a Big Mac? It's nuts. Um, so question. that um, that led me to really want to learn about uh, farming, and I ended up starting uh, an aquaponics farm in Austin, Texas, and that was you know with two other uh, farmers, you know, two other entrepreneurs that had built this really uh, cool farm in their backyard, and they needed some help building it out. Uh, to be a bigger enterprise. So I joined, I invested, and then I ended up running the company and learned all about uh, farming. And the idea with, with that was uh, the company is called Efficient Organics, and it was to grow produce as efficiently as possible, 100% organic, uh, with no waste, and and uh, as low, you know, low cost as possible. And it was definitely challenging, but the most challenging part of the whole thing was getting the product from the farm to the store. Mm. And we had to take this beautiful head of lettuce. I mean, it was like art. And we had to put that in that single-use plastic clamshell or the plastic bag, which then went into a corrugated box, which then went into a refrigerated truck, which then you know, went to a distribution center, which then sat in, you know, in bins and then went on another truck to go to the grocery store. And that's where, you know, you have this, you know, which then, you know, ultimately gets to your fridge, right? That bag that you open that then goes bad, right? So that leads to this 40 to 50% waste. So I'm like, this is kind of nuts. If we just took the waste out, we'd cut the price of fresh food in half just by taking the waste out, you know, mm -hmm. and there's all this science and people thinking about, oh, let's use this like herbicide or let's use this new chemical, this new genetic engineering. We'll get like a 1% improvement in yield. And we have all this negative ramification. But if we actually just took the waste out, we have a hundred percent improvement in yield. So, mm -hmm. I st I thought, wow, this far farming, the small farm that we had, and all the other farms in the community and other communities would never really work unless we solved this like last mile problem and we solved the waste problem. So, I started to think of different paradigms. Like, do we need to kill the plant? And then send a dead, essentially a dead plant thousands of miles to the store over this time? Or could we somehow send a living plant to the end customer, bypass the distribution center and the stores and the refrigerated trucks and all that, and just have it sit there and grow 
and be alive and tasty until the end consumer is ready to eat. And it sounded like a crazy idea, but I just started thinking through it and saw that, you know, the, w- the way we architected, not only do we reduce all that waste, but we could also reduce 98% of the water. So not a lot of people know, but conventionally it takes 20 to 21 gallons of water to, to just grow a head of lettuce. Mm. With our system, it takes 0.8 gallons because it's hydroponics and everything's recirculating. But in the current food system, you essentially, there's two lettuces being grown and transported for everyone that's consumed. So it's essentially 40 gallons of water used, you know, versus 0.8 gallons. So when we think about like the water uh, situation that we're in, especially in California, you know, saving 40 gallons of water is a big deal, you know, on a, you know, on one, uh, one piece of produce. So we can reduce the water and then we also reduce the chemicals. There's zero chemicals used. We can reduce the labor. We can reduce, uh, you know, the, the overall real land footprint. So, um, the more I thought through it was, Hey, this, this is kind of like solar panels, but for food, Mm. And and the portion of food that we can do this way, we should. That makes sense. So how did you land on the idea? You mentioned the difference between shipping a dead plant versus uh, a living plant. But obviously, if you're germinating these seedlings and sending them as live, what is the difference? How much water does it take to create that seedling versus, for example, shipping a customer a seed? And why was the decision made to do it at the seedling stage? Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like you have some experience growing, you know, and, and uh, you know, you push the seeds in and you don't know whether, you don't know, did I add enough water? Should I add water some more? Is this germinating? Is it not? And you might only have a 50 to 70% germination rate, you know, so that's very frustrating, Um I, I believe it's in our DNA to grow. And that's why I see when people do start growing, they love it so much. But because it's in our DNA to grow and be successful at it, it's also in our DNA to hate failing at it. You know, and, um, yeah. <laughs> and people have this fear of failure and it starts at germination yeah. and it's hard to get it right. And that's where really, you know, if you have a horticulture background, that's going to help a lot, right? And I, And so even though it makes our business much, much, much more complex, right? Shipping living plants all over the country. It means that our end customer, the grower, the consumer is going to be so much more successful because they're already starting off with a germinated plant that's already, you know, had the first couple weeks of their life, you know, uh, of its life being like really uh, treated extremely well. Mm. Um, so you're guaranteed to have a plant growing well, and you're also cutting the time in half. So it's more, you know, instant gratification for the, or at least closer to instant gratification for the, for the grower. Sure. Striking that balance between ease of use for them and also logistics for you and finding that sweet spot where it's hopefully a little bit of both. 
Yeah, I don't know if, yeah, I mean, it's definitely very much more complex. You know, I think we, it's rather than find the balance, honestly, we just said, let's maximize the benefit for the grower and let's us take on whatever we need to do to do that. And mm-hmm. um, it is very challenging, but but we figured it out. So Nice. So the actual unit, the farm stand itself, that does that plug into an outlet? Does it require some amount of power to operate? How does it, what do I need to run it? Yeah. So if you're growing outdoors, uh, you need to, you need an outlet. Uh, you need about six to eight hours of sunlight and you just plug our pump into the outlet and the pump is on a timer and every hour or so it goes off and it runs for about 15 minutes and it shoots water to the top of the system and it rains down inside and it delivers the right amount of water and nutrients to the roots. And uh, it draws the same amount of power as like a 60 watt light bulb. It's about 50 cents a month. Um, If you're growing indoors, then you need one more uh, socket and that would be to plug in the lights. And the lights uh, are very, they were designed to, uh, so that the plants grow really well, but also aesthetically that they're easy to have around you, that the, there's a very, uh, like warm temperature. They're you're not, not go like blind. blue. Yeah. You're not going to go blind and there's no <laughs> blue light added blue light, which isn't really good for, uh, you know, for people. And, uh, that adds the, de- that adds another dollar fifty to two dollars worth of power uh, per month. Mm. So reasonable, and yeah, what I love about doing this show is that I get access to all kinds of interesting solutions. We have a lot of similar problems, but different people come in at different points in the chain. And what I like is different people in different physical geographical locations have different limitations and different needs and different solutions lend themselves towards different types of people in different environments. And what I like about this product and this idea is that it represents something for a large portion of people, because one of the most life-changing things living in Southern California myself that my wife and I ever did was subscribing to a CSA box from a local farm. And then we get a box of fresh produce from a farm just up the road, no plastic involved. And of course, being in California, you can get such a thing year round. And that's that was a game changing experience when we first learned that you could do that and that it was even cheaper than Whole Foods, all of these things. But I'm very, very aware that not everybody lives in Southern California. For many people, a CSA box is something they can only get in the summer, if at all. Many people struggle to get high quality produce and certainly leafy greens and things like that uh, in the winter months and for many months of the year. So there are a lot of people who can benefit from your solution that probably can't take advantage of some other ideas that would mitigate this huge problem of food logistics, right? Definitely. Um, yeah, and I'd, l- I'd love to make a couple points on that. Sure. Um, I I actually, uh, I'm the chairman of another company uh, that's based in Austin, Texas called Farmhouse Delivery. And farmhouse delivery actually uh, has created a network of 200 or so local farms and ranches and essentially aggregates the food and delivers it, you know, directly to your door. So it's like a CSA that ties in, you know, a couple hundred farms. And 
the uh, and really providing that logistics infrastructure. So my personal thought is that let's say 20% of your food should come from your home. And then the next 50% should be like from CSAs and from farms within, let's say, a 100, uh, 200 mile radius. And then beyond that, then you have your grains and things like that, that those could ship and those could come from a couple, you know, thousand or a couple thousand miles. And I, see, I think that it's all tied together because when you start to grow your own food at home, you, you start to have this appreciation for um, what goes into it or what doesn't go into it, right? You realize uh, you didn't add any chemicals, right? Or you might have had a uh, like a caterpillar and you, you have a decision, like what do, what do you do? Do you do nothing? Do you flick it off? Do you use uh, pesticide? If you use pesticide, do you use organic? Do you use something else more harsh? And you start to realize like a farmer is making that decision for you every single day. And what kind of farmer do you want to make that decision? You know, and it's, and you start to think about where that other 80% of your food comes from. And mm -hmm. that, and, and you generally want that to come from your local farmers, right? You want to support your community and you want, you know, people like us like to be growing the food and not necessarily like mega corporations um, that have it, you know, their interest in the bottom line is, is different. So um, I think that the growing at home really, you know, really drives an appreciation for that. And then once you have an appreciation, hopefully then we, you know, we can invest in these local systems that help bring, you know, bring the food like from your CSA, you know, and from the local farms and ranches more, you know, directly to you in a convenient way. Yeah, it's, I think it's brilliant. And I think you're right. And one of the things that I saw from your website was this idea that also for kids, the idea of watching something grow, like you said, for your kids and, and being a part of that process makes the idea of eating this thing seem more palpable and it makes it more valuable. Whereas if I say, hey, here's some lettuce, who knows where it came from? You say, ugh, I don't want that. But if you say, hey, let's watch this thing grow and then it becomes a pet project and kind of exciting, then when it comes time to eat it, there's this inherent appreciation for where it comes from based on watching that process, which I think is super cool. Definitely. I mean, I don't even need to tell them, hey, let's eat this thing that we grow because they just go over there, pick it off and they just start eating. And they and it's just, it's remarkable that they'll pull a head of romaine or, you know, just something else that you'd think that would normally, they'd want salad dressing or different things to make it taste better. Um, they, you know, they won't eat a, tomato at a restaurant but they pull the cherry tomatoes right off hmm. the farm stand and they just you know they eat them like they're candy so um it's in in seeing kids and watching my kids and also you know we have a program where we donate one to a school for every 10 that we sell so we we're in thousands of classrooms and so i've seen lots of kids interact and i would say every single kid right, has some affinity to growing. It doesn't have to be through our system. It could be through raised beds or just like, you know, growing a potato in a jar. Um, but that that's why, you know, earlier I said it's in our DNA. I believe it because I observe it. 
it's, you know, and we have grown our own food for hundreds of thousands of years. It's only mm-hmm. the last 200 that we haven't. We've actually been pulled away from it. So it's kind of like a reconnect, but the kids have that innate instinct. So my goal is to give them is give them that experience, right? Put it in front of them. And that does lead them to be more adventurous in their own eating, more open-minded, um, more thoughtful about things. And I think then they grow up to have a more connected mindset than like our generation, you know, did yeah. growing up. Yeah, and a lot of these solutions that I've come across, they paint a picture of a future where the individual home unit is much more productive. And I've come across a number of fascinating companies at this point, like this Italian startup that lets you keep bees in your backyard, and those bees produce a shocking amount of honey, 2.5 kilos per month, an insane amount of honey. So you can get honey for yourself. You can get lettuce now for yourself with your project. You can power this thing with, like you said, solar panels on your roof. You can get uh, your own water from the air. So there's this vision of the future where the home unit is much more productive and much more self-contained and much less reliant on these external systems which, as we know, are being pushed sort of to their breaking point at this point in time and are probably going to break in the next 20 years. There's no guarantee that these complicated supply chains are just going to keep functioning as they have been in the last 50, 60 years. Yeah, they're breaking right now. You know, um, you know, I, I could talk about... Uh, lettuce, uh, that's my, I guess, expertise right now. But um, in Australia, the price of iceberg lettuce, do you have any idea what, what that is right now? <laughs> no, no, but it's like I'm going to say $20 like, a bag. I don't know. It's like 20 to $30 a head. 20 to $30 a head for iceberg lettuce in Australia? Yeah. That cannot be right. Really? That's what, yeah, you can go look it up. And you have to different... really want iceberg lettuce at that point. Yeah, um, KFC took it off the, you know, took it all of out of all their sandwiches, replaced it with cabbage. Get out of here! Um, but we are going to see price shocks like that here. You know, we have this more and more. We have a globalized, you know, supply chain. So things that happen in Ukraine, you know, affect us, and then even within this country, like. You know, the food is being transported all over the place. And, you know, you hear things like, oh, there's another E. coli outbreak. Don't eat lettuce from Arizona, New Mexico, California, Colorado, because uh, we don't know where it comes from. Like the spinach scare of some years back. Yeah, it's so over uh, industrialized and centralized that we need to go more back to a distributed system. Um, and I think that, you know, the older school companies were focused on owning all of that, right. And centralizing that. And now there's, I think a new breed of companies that are, have a more mind to to distributing that and enabling, you know, and empowering the consumer to, to make more decisions and to be, you know, bigger part of that. And, uh, and in the process, save, you know, so much of the environmental resources and other costs involved. But, you know, we're still dealing with consumers in the end and consumers, you know, are used to a certain 
convenience. So I think it's upon all upon all of us, right, and to make our products right as easy to use as possible, as beautiful, right, as they can be, as cost you know competitive with the alternative. Um, and yeah, we have a lot of work to do, but it is very possible, you know, to reimagine how our consumption works, you know, and where we, where we consume our, our, our products from. Right. And you mentioned, like you said, what, not just what goes into it, but what doesn't go into it. And aside from what farmers consciously add and no shade against farmers for the most part, because they're they should be respected a lot more in general. I have a lot of respect in general for farmers. Farmers are the caretakers of the earth. Right. We can't live without them and we should all be aware of that at all times. But in addition to what they're adding or not adding to their produce, you often hear stories of things that they don't even know are being added. Like for example, runoff from a factory farm over here is coming into the spinach and the lettuce over there because they're neighboring, even if it's not the same farm. And then that runoff has antibiotics and all kinds of things. And, you know, these, these things like E. coli and these illnesses, they get in there somehow, right? How do they get in there? It's not like farmers are adding these things, but it's byproducts of some other processes that aren't super great. So when you get the chance to eliminate that and say, none of that has ever been anywhere near this, and I've watched it grow, and I know what went into it, well, there's, there's power there too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, my, you know, I, I, you know talking about farmers, you know, it used to be that 70% of the this country, right? Seventy uh, percent of the population was involved in food production. I think that was 150 years ago or so. Now it's less than one percent. So, I my goal, right? You think even more than uh, helping people, right, grow their own food? I am helping to grow farmers. You know, we've created over a hundred thousand farmers in the last couple of years, and. I think, you know, we should all be farmers. And when you have farmers, when you are a farmer, you have just a different attitude about the earth. You have a different attitude about resources. And, you know, um, I, I have so much respect for them. And I think, but the more that we can convert people to farmers, the more we become much more conscious consumers. And then we we actually make a dent on all of these, like, high-level you know, problems like climate change that seem just so out of reach for us that we can make them, we can make it tangible for us all to participate in the solution. That's so true. And I have deep respect for the fact that you, you know, coming from the careers that you did, which is pointing towards my next line of questioning, coming from the background that you did, to choose to do this, knowing that you could have done a number of things. I'm always very aware of the kind of people who have choices to do many things. Some people don't have a choice. Other people have many, many choices. You strike me as the kind of person who had many, many, many choices in what you could have done or could do with your time at any point by virtue of the fact that you've done a whole bunch of careers. So... I generally applaud anybody who is willing to take it upon themselves to attempt to solve these things or to think creatively about them because God knows we need more people like you out there doing that and trying to find different ways of how can I contribute 1% or in your case, 20% of the food because these things add up. 20% here, 20% there. Huge differences can happen if more people do that. 
So with that said, you mentioned before we began taping that you have never been on the often path in your life, and you hinted at some of the reasons why. So tell me a little bit about your career arc. I mean, obviously, we've got MIT in there. We've got chemical background. We've got uh, brokerage. We've got all kinds of crazy, seemingly unrelated things. So how, how do you describe the pieces of your journey that led up to this? And how did you feel during those various parts of your life's journey? Yeah. Um, let's see. I mean, I think I think a lot comes from like a beginner's mindset. You know, I started young, so I didn't know anything. And I also took risk. And I, so starting, you know, the beginner's mindset allows you to see things in fresh perspectives, right? You're an outsider. You're not really locked into, you know, the current way of thinking. And I, you know, from day one, I saw an opportunity and I questioned, I'm like, why is it done this way? Can it be done this other way? And maybe, you know, my ideas were naive, but I think early on, I, you know, I had enough energy you know, to go after the ideas and I had a relative amount of success and that really gave me confidence um, so that when I went to the next thing and saw, you know, went to the next industry, which I knew nothing about when I, you know, when I got in that I, you know, I could return to that beginner's mindset. I could see what I, you know, see what I saw and see inefficiencies and see things that didn't make sense. And, you know, have the confidence to know there is a path, you know, just, just keep on, you know, keep on going and, um, you know, that I'll find a path. And the last, you know, a couple things that I've done, you know, so I, I mentioned building a trading platform. So that was probably prior to let us grow the company I'm most proud of. Um, and, we built a weather derivatives trading platform. And so we're like, whoa, that's, what's that? You know, that's crazy. But it was essentially allowing, you know, companies to trade their weather uh, related, like risk exposure hmm. with each other. And we, uh, you know, when I, when I started it and I would go, to the different uh, companies, like energy companies and hedge funds, and that were that were, you know, trading you know similar products. And I showed them uh, what I had in mind. They were like, "That's crazy," you know. But they're like, "Well, but if it worked one percent of the time, it'd be it'd be pretty interesting." So we started that way. But by the time I uh, sold the company you know, and then switch industries that we had like 98% market share and we Dang. had done over, over a trillion dollars of weather trading on the platform. What? So, oh my um, but it started with people saying like, I can't, I don't want to say expletives, but you're, you know, bleeping nuts. Like, what are you, you know? <laughs> you, you can say whatever you want to say. You can say. Yeah. But, uh, so, but, it was also, you know, having some innocence and having, you know, the 
just, you know, the confidence to really believe in the vision that I had and just, you know, and just, you know, keep chugging along. So in food, uh, you know, and I never really imagined a career in food and I definitely never imagined a career in consumer products, right? In selling products, you know, sure. to, to people. Um, but I saw problems and I said, this, this is a glaring problem mm-hmm. that like somebody needs to do something. And, Absolutely. and the solution to it, you know, involved the consumer. And so I ended up running a consumer product, you know, company, but it was never, it was never a goal of mine. I never set out to do this. It was mm-hmm. just, I was following my curiosity with, you know, questioning why is food, why is organic food so expensive, learning about farming. And it's just kind of following the breadcrumbs and just seeing, seeing problems and thinking of solutions and really not hearing any, uh, any reasons why my ideas wouldn't work. So, um, and you know, that's why I went for them. And that's probably like the thread that's, you know, with, in all my endeavors. You've never been afraid to take a risk or what other people deemed to be a risk, let's say. Do you, yeah. um, have you heard the old chestnut of, do you know the fastest way to become a millionaire in the movie business? Is this start with a hundred million? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you find that it's to be true? It's probably two million, but yeah, I do. <laughs> 35 films later, I think you know what you're talking about. So in, in terms of time, like you, you began when you were 14, uh, builds a brokerage business. Uh, what made you decided to go to MIT? I assume this was after that period. Um, at what age did you go to MIT? The normal college age? The normal age. Okay. Yeah, I went the normal age. And why did you choose the degree that you chose? Well, to tell you the truth, I didn't know. I, I feel like maybe for me and maybe for a lot of kids that you go to college too early because it's like I had to pick a degree. So I, sure did. Yeah. Um, I, I, I picked, uh, I asked what the hardest major was and uh, I got, it was chemical engineering and aero astro. And, uh, but chemical engineering, you didn't have to do a thesis at the end. So I was like, I'll do chemical engineering, but it was really more of like, probably this more like accomplishment based success based mindset that maybe I grew up with or I got from my dad. So it was like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just know I wanted to do, you know, something, you know, I wanted to, uh, accomplish and, and, and probably make my dad happy, you know? Um, or make other, you know, just stand out. So that, that was, you know, the driver then. And I'm very happy I did pick that degree. I never, you know, I never worked in a refinery or anything like that. But, um, you know, chemical engineers just solve very complex problems. And uh, I think that's, you know, and problems that involve many, many variables, you know, too many variables to solve. So you really need to think, hey, which ones of these matter, which don't matter. Um, and I think that's really the way I look at everyday problems. I see a lot of noise. There's a lot of clutter, you know, and everything. And it's mm-hmm. just like, okay, how do I boil down? Like what's really happening? What's the essence? And so I'm very grateful, um, you know, I picked that degree. Mm-hmm. 
Do you view your career arc as a progression in terms of skills and ethics and feeling, or do you see it as a series of semi-unrelated detours? I think it's a progression, and I think it's also... It, sounds, it might sound crazy, but like a return to who I am, you know, at cool. a core. Mm-hmm. And I see it like in my kids, because I have a five and a seven-year-old, and they're like so pure, you know, they're so themselves. They're their own identities, which I had nothing to do with. And when I look at them, I can go look at the picture when they were just born, and I can see like what I see now, I can see that, you know, in them. And I sometimes like say like, I wonder like, where's the little boy in me? You know, like who is that identity? And that, you know, that you get to a certain age and you have teachers say stuff and your parents say stuff, right? Like you're, you know, you get folk, you get focused on success in chemical engineering or, you know, all these different things and you go down this path. Um, but I think all of these, uh, decisions have brought me back to more like who I am, you know, at the core. And that's like, I'm a very caring person. I, you know, want to help, you know, people and I want to help the environment. And, um, you know, and, you know, when I started, I was like trading, you know, I was, I was using my skills to make money. And now money, I, is the thing I probably care least about. Um, you know, I care about everything else, you know, more. Yeah. So I think it's just really gotten me back to my core self. That's such a beautiful sentiment and very well, well said. Do you feel that it's a necessary step for many people to pursue money first and then kind of work their way into these things that they care about more because it is a theme that I've come across several times and I think society it's hard to resist the influence from society in that regard whether it's your parents Mm -hmm. or whether it's the world at large that tells you these are the things that you should want this is the type of thing that we admire and at a certain age, like you said, some people realize maybe these things aren't all of those things. Or you know, you can have all the money in the world, but it's the old uh, rosebud situation of Citizen Kane, right? You, you have this giant mansion, but at the end of the day, what is the meaning of one's life? Um, but is it, I wonder, a necessary step for many people to experience that first and maybe bring those skills and the results of that to something else? Is that just part of human nature, do you think? Or is it a step that uh, people would be best skipping, in your opinion? I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, I think because I'm lucky that I was successful and and I, you know, built resources that then allowed me to do things that were closer to my passion, you know, and more mission oriented. And now I don't think money, you know, matters, but I think maybe it's, it could be money or not money. It's like security, right? I think Mm. that people need to feel right, secure and then taking, because a lot of times the the things that where you're really going to make an impact are require risk, right? And they require going against convention and they might, they might lead to ridicule, you know? And so the more, security that you have or maybe the more accomplishment or 
or confidence in yourself, right, that you have that can allow you to do that. I think, you know, I, I think that's that's very helpful. And money definitely plays into it, but and it did for me. But once I did once I did have enough money, I, I wasn't thinking about more mm-hmm. money. Um I was then it, it freed me to like go down a rabbit hole of my passion without even knowing if there would be money on the other end of things. Mm-hmm. But is that because I had the money and it allowed me to do that? Or is that because I became more evolved, you know, for some other reason? So it's, I don't really know, but I, I think some of it definitely, it definitely plays into it. Um, yeah. But yeah, the money that I thought I needed for security, I don't think I really did need or do need, you know, and I see because I think happiness, uh, you know, joy and for me experiencing my time with my kids, that's the, the most valuable uh, time that I have. And that doesn't require money. And I see in other people have it that have less resources and they might have more happiness. So, mm. yeah. And we, as a culture, I like that you use the word ridicule because there's that saying virtue is its own reward, which I'm sure you've heard of. And I think there's this belief that when we embrace more virtuous things or more ethical ways of being, or when we go against the grain in society, that there will be a parade for us or that will be celebrated. But the fact of the matter is, in many cases, the opposite is true because other people who are still stuck in that world, they say, hey, what the hell are you doing? Why are you wasting your time on something like this, right? And I was reading an article about... Uh, Socrates, whom we now know as being one of the most famous and influential uh, influential philosophers of all time, in his time, he was ridiculed, ostracized, and ultimately murdered for just questioning things. That's it. And you, instead of being met as some kind of hero or an enlightened being, it was quite the opposite. He was made fun of and actively uh, hated and humiliated. And, and so it does take a lot of integrity and it takes a lot of courage i think as individuals to pursue something that that we believe in and i think a lot of the stories around entrepreneurship or social entrepreneurship in general tend to minimize those risks when one is experiencing them because from the outside it's say oh yeah he took some risks but then the company is successful we just really downplay the risk part and then we focus on the rest of it uh, then it was good but when you're experiencing that risk, it, it it's no joke. When you put things on the line, it is no joke, and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like the outcome is certain when you're in the middle of that. Is that something that you experienced as well when you made yeah. a hard transition? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the outcome is definitely not certain, and for every one of those, you know, entrepreneurs that took a risk and you know knocked it out of the park. You know, there's more than 99 <laughs> that didn't, um, and so the out the outcome is definitely not certain. The parade doesn't necessarily happen for you, or if it does, it happens after you're dead. You know, right. people, oh, he did know, great rea- stuff. Yeah, <laughs> realize it later. I mean, if you look at like just science, you know, it's like. Uh, you know, you're challenging doctrine and nobody wants to hear that, you know, and then, you know, 50 years, a hundred years later, like, oh yeah, that guy was right. Um, but I'll tell you when I take on something new, I have to believe it, 
you know, and not want it or hope for it. I have to know it, you know, and I almost like think in an alternative universe, this is happening, right? It's, it's how it should be. Mm. And when I have that, then it's like, I know this is something, you know, I'm into. So to me, I believe with every like cell of my body that this is going to be, um, but I, you know, and, and I, and I'm a hundred percent plan A, I have no plan B, but mm-hmm. I also just as an intellectual, you know, I know that it's not certain, um, but you need to have that conviction that it is certain because it is so hard. It is so hard to, to, to challenge convec- convention. That's not going to work if you do not put a hundred percent into that. So, um, but it's it's so worth it too. I mean, it's me. It's it's the most meaningful thing that you can do with your your time. Mm. And and you mentioned that this project is the one that you're most proud of. Do you feel not to use a wishy washy term here, but do you feel that your energy or vibration has changed? Do you feel that your being has changed now that you're in pursuit of this versus some of the things you did previously? Do you wake up each day with a slightly different feeling? Yeah, I do. I wake up with gratitude. You know, I used to wake up with the 30 things on my to-do list and just like distressed. And now I'm just, I just wake up happy. I mean, every there's still the little things I need to do that pop up. But in the end, like I mentioned, we've created over 100,000 farmers and we've Amazing. given this joy. Like people yep. just love growing their own food. I mean, they have so much satisfaction and pride in it. So... I know that even though my day is stressful and has its ups and downs, that I all of our customers are happy and I've just brought them joy. And that also gives, you know, helps make them appreciate the earth and the resources and everything else so much more. So I feel like there's nothing, you know, and that's it, it, similar to like raising my kids. You know, it's like I'm doing the things that... Um, you know, I'm doing the best things, you know, that I could be doing. So it feels great. Whereas, you know, in the past, a lot of times it was, I want to get to this milestone or this threshold. So, you know, there's, it's some accomplishment based thing. And, um, and now it's really just like spreading this, spreading joy. That's awesome. Well, I, like I said, I, I genuinely appreciate the fact that you have done this and that your arc has brought you in this way. Now that you're a few years into this project and you know gaining momentum, has your vision expanded in terms of what you'd like to do in the next five to ten years? Do you have some new ideas or things cooking of how you can better spread this or or build the business, or do you say I'm just going to stick with this product and this idea for now until it reaches more people? Or what do you hope for the next several years? Yeah, well, there's kind of like I think a normal progression. I think in a way. When I first started, my vision was way more expansive. And I was like, okay, mm. how am I going to do this? So, whoa. So, one component was really getting consumer engagement. And so, it was like, hey, let's get, you know, people to grow their own food. Because we talked about, like, the CSA and that because it's not just growing your own food, right? It's then how do we support all the local farmers, right? And, um, 
you know, in our community and how do we make it easier for their food to get to our doors and to our homes. So I've had, in order to be uh, efficient and effective, you have to like kind of reduce your vision to focus, you know, on one thing at a time and then slowly re-expand it, you know, and get back to where it was. So, but for Lettuce Grow, for what we're doing right now, I mean, I, I have a huge vision for that. Um, I think that, um, you know, we used to not have refrigerators, and now we do. And we used to not have, like, home gardens. And, I mean, we used to, and then we, for a long time we yeah, didn't, and now we're going to go back to it. And I, th- and I think a farm stand or something like it should will be in every household. I don't know if it's in the next... 10 years or 15 years, but I think, I think somewhere in that time frame. So I'm working to make it as accessible so that everyone can participate in that. I I think you're absolutely right. And the best vision that I have of the future is, is the marriage of our technology and the natural world. That to me has always been the most compelling vision of a, of a good future. We know what an ugly and negative future looks like, and it's bleak and it's barren and it's a wasteland. Positive things are the merging of technology and plants and green and life and all of that. And I've always loved, you know, buildings that have trees inside. I was watching a, a movie where they show the old Apple campus and there's trees inside the building and orchards and there's this show on Apple uh, TV called Home where they show a Swedish house that's inside of a greenhouse and between the house and the greenhouse that the house is in, in the middle of this freezing cold part of Sweden, is all this life and plants and nature. And I just always think those are the most beautiful things. So, yes, if I'm going to be indoors, why not be surrounded not just by decorative plants, but why not functional plants? If you're going to grow a plant, why not grow a plant you can eat? I've sort of always thought about that. I agree. Yeah. 100%. (laughs) Those that are watching the video, look over your shoulder and like, that looks pretty cool. Um, Well, I want to be very respectful of your time. I very much appreciate you sitting down with me and sharing your vision and your thoughts. It's uh, super compelling. I'm very glad that you have chosen to do this. As I said, I have a lot of respect for it. I wish you hundreds of thousands of more new farmers. I hope that your kids are inspired from this and that the mission to make a tiny dent in the universe is a successful one in the next 10 years. Um, before we wrap it up, though, I'd like to leave the last word to you. So anything you want to promote or let people know about or any action, or if you just have a parting piece of wisdom, you can shut us down. Parting piece of wisdom, start before you're ready, and you can grow your own food at home successfully. So give it a shot. You'll love it. Well, that sounds great. Jacob, with that, the official podcast is over. 